Today on the Cameron Journal Podcast, we're going to be talking about the Second Amendment and gun rights, and why America seems to have far more mass shootings than almost any other country. So, strap in, it's the Cameron Journal Podcast. This is the Cameron Journal Podcast. It's a place where we talk about important things. It's a place where we bring a little slice of the news to you. It's a place where we do important things, have important conversations. It's also things that I like to talk about. My name is Cameron Cowan, and this is the Cameron Journal Podcast. Today we're going to explore one of the most controversial aspects of American life. Gun rights make the American experience unique. Most other countries restrict gun ownership in some way. Many other nations have registration regulations or storage regulations. Many other nations even require licensing. But in America, unless you want to conceal and carry, you can walk into a store, buy a gun, and leave with no more than a simple background check. If you don't want to go to that trouble, you can seek out a weapon on the private market, where the sale of weapons is entirely unregulated. This culture of unregulated gun ownership runs deep in America. The American populace is the most well-armed in the world. Americans own more guns than any military on Earth. Most other nations do allow this liberal use and ownership of weapons. Why does America? The reason is simple, and it has to do with one very important sentence in the U.S. Constitution. A well-ordered militia, being necessary for the security of a free state, the right to keep and bear arms, shall not be infringed. Bullseye, baby! Tighten shoulder, cheek on the stock. Americans love their guns. Guns are a form of personal defense. They're a tool for feeding one's family. They also have a mystique and a culture all their own. Loose gun control had a great deal to do with how the founders of America felt about guns themselves. Let's set the scene. It's 1787. The Constitutional Convention is sitting in Philadelphia. The new country is still living under the Articles of Confederation, and now that the British have been soundly beaten, it was up to the leaders of the revolution to create a new nation. At the time the convention meant, becoming a federal republic was not popular. Many of the former colonies felt that they could get along just fine on their own. However, thanks to writing by Hamilton, Madison, and others through the Federalist Papers, they made the case to their fellow countrymen that a federal republic would be the best way forward. This was an idea to the surrounding neighbors of the new nation. Britain still had access to the new world. They might try and seize their former colonies, which they would attempt in 1810 through 1812, resulting in the burning of Washington, D.C. and the first White House. The convention delegates wanted many of the rights deprived of them by the British to be enshrined in this new document. The Bill of Rights was integral to getting the Constitution ratified. The delegates couldn't agree on enshrining them within the original document, so there was a compromise. To pass these rights in the first Congress and have them be ratified by the states. Most of the Bill of Rights, with six exceptions, was passed in the earliest days of the new Congress and ratified by the states between 1789 and 1791. However, the 27th Amendment regarding the compensation of Congress members was not ratified until 1992. 
Part of the reason the Second Amendment was so important was that under the British there had been gun control. There had been weapons restrictions. There was also the idea that the new nations, still surrounded by the French to the west, the British to the north, and Spain to the south, would need an ardent defense especially without a standing professional army. At the time, given the recent past experience with gun control and the very real need for a national defense, armed citizenry was an excellent idea to make sure that an army could be quickly and easily raised. The founders did not want the American populace to lose the right to defend themselves in their home. However, while we're thinking about the context of the 18th century, weapons were very different then. Muskets were slow-loading. The first repeating weapons wouldn't be produced for another 60 years. The first weapons to specialize in mass death wouldn't come until the Civil War and the decades afterwards. The Founders did not envision the weapons that are available now. For them, it would have seemed absurd for the everyday person to own a cannon, which was the biggest weapon of their day. It would have seemed even more strange for someone to own one and wheel it around town to make themselves feel safer. I imagine that if that were the case, they would have passed some sort of canon control legislation. There is no way the founders could have conceived of our current gun culture. There is no way they could have conceived of weapons like the AR-15 or the AK-47. However, these weapons are now widely available despite the fact it was recently announced that Colt, the maker of the AR-15, is ending private citizen sales of the popular weapon. Other weapons, with just as much deadly force, continue to be sold and produced for the public. So that leaves us with one question. Why can't America have reasonable gun control like other nations? There are a variety of reasons for that, but before we ask that question, we have to consider the situation in which we have this conversation. And let's start with the most frightening of these, mass shootings. The investigation into the high school massacre is slow-moving and dangerous. The two gunmen who went on the rampage booby-trapped the building and even themselves. All day long, investigators have searched the homes of both teenage killers. In one of them, police say they found bomb-making materials. Specially trained officers searching the school today found close to 30 explosive devices all around the building. Authorities have also revised the death toll, now saying 15 people were killed, including the two gunmen. Most of the bodies are still inside the school, but families of the murder victims have been notified. N.J. Burkett begins our coverage. He is live in Littleton, Colorado. Right here in Newtown, Connecticut. The site today of a mass shooting, and this time, gunfire aimed at elementary school children. In Poway, California, this individual was with an AR, AR-type assault weapon and opened fire on the people inside the, the synagogue. We do want to update you on the breaking news out of Orlando, the terror attack on a gay nightclub. Right now, at least 20 are dead, maybe more. The shooter also dead. Police say that he was well prepared. He was organized. They do not believe that he was from the area. More than 40 have been taken to a local hospital. Good evening. We're coming on the air tonight to update you on a breaking news story, a mass shooting at a government building in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Police say a man who was a longtime employee of the Public Works Department suddenly opened fire in that building, killing at least 11 people and injuring others. We've also learned the gunman is also dead after a firefight with police. We're coming on the air this morning with breaking news from Dayton, Ohio, a second mass shooting in the United States in less than 24 hours. Overnight, nine dead in Dayton after a shooter fired a long gun outside on a street in a popular nightlife district. Police were nearby when the shooting began. Several officers helped to shoot and kill the gunman in what they say was a very short period of time. 
16 people were injured, none of them police. That comes on the heels of Saturday's mass shooting at a crowded Walmart in El Paso, Texas, which left 20 dead and 26 injured. The chaos unfolding at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. The community ordered to shelter in place. Do not come out of your home right now. It is not safe. As many as 100 people were inside, members had gathered for the Saturday service and a baby naming ceremony. We are pinned down by gunfire. He's firing out of the front of the building with an automatic weapon. I was in the gym and I heard a loud, well, I heard like seven loud booms. And the gym teachers told us to go in the corner. So we all huddled, we started crying. All the gym teachers told us to go into the office. Inside the school, police found the shooter dead. Who kills kids like this? Police say they never fired a shot. Many of the shooter's victims, the youngest children in the school. We've just been listening to uh, Sheriff Jeff Dean from the uh, Ventura County Sheriff's Office giving us a little more information. This is maybe a little bit over an hour ago about uh, the mass shooting in, in uh, Thousand Oaks, California at uh, a bar there. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton tells CBS News that 15 to 20 people were killed in a mass shooting in El Paso. It happened at a Walmart store. And we begin tonight with the new details in the deadly shooting at the Pensacola Naval Base with authorities investigating it as a possible act of terror and mounting questions about the gunman. The FBI tonight trying to determine whether 21-year-old Saudi national Mohammed al-Shamrani acted alone when he opened fire inside a military building at the base where he was training. Mass shootings are an event that, especially in recent days, have become all too common in American life. There are too many to name here. If I read most of them off, it would be 10 minutes of incidences. There are a few that stand out among all the rest like the Columbine High School shooting in 1999, the Newtown Elementary School shooting, Pulse Nightclub, El Paso, the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, the Las Vegas uh, Music Festival shooting. The list goes on and on and on. They make the news and they create very unique national tragedies. People that have had relatives and children and spouses who've been killed in these things form a sort of macabre fraternity of people who have been touched by this all-too-American and unique form of violence. Statistically speaking, there's no clear definition for a mass shooting. <coughs> some studies use five or more victims, and some studies use two or more people. According to a Mother Jones study, in mass shootings of more than five people since 1982, there have been 941 total deaths, 1,431 injuries, and 2,372 total victims. Schools and workplaces are the most common places for a shooting to take place, but in the last decade, there seems like there is no location that is safe. From nightclubs to eateries like the Waffle House, mass shootings can take place anywhere. According to the Gun Violence Archive, in 2019, the number of gun violence deaths from all causes were 39,430. Homicide, murder, and unintentional violence included 15,340. There were 24,090 suicides, and there were also 29,650 gun-related injuries. Mass shootings in 2019 included 418 victims. There were 31 mass murders. The number of children 0 to 11 killed numbered 209 and injured were 487. The number of teens aged 12 to 17 killed were 776 and 2,302 were injured. 
officer in officers involved in gun violence incidences where 71 of them were killed while 302 were injured. The uh, suspect killed or injured by officers include 1,284 suspects killed and 791 injured. The defensive use of weapons resulted in 1,577 deaths and unintentional shootings with a discharge of a weapon was 1,875. Murder-suicides were 626. These are the highest numbers of any other developed nation. There's a variety of violence that occurs with guns in this country, and oftentimes women and children bear the most of it. Women who are in homes where their partner is abusing them and the partner owns a gun are more likely to die from gun violence. It's a simple fact. When a tool is available, oftentimes that tool is used. It's hard to compare the rate of mass shootings in the U.S. to other countries because our country is more populous than most other developed nations. However, there are some countries that come closer, like Germany with 83 million people and France with 65 million people. However, their rates of gun violence are far lower than what we have in the United States. Excluding accidents and suicides, <clears throat> the U.S. has a higher per person death rate of 4.43 per 100,000 people. While we're on the low end compared with places like Central America, for countries with low rates of gun violence, we are higher than anyone else. Even comparing the U.S. with Asia leaves the U.S. at number two behind the Philippines. Compared to countries of similar wealth, America has a gun violence problem, and it's not just mass shootings. Gang violence and domestic violence are also a problem at a multiple far higher than most other countries. The places with similar rates of gun violence are a collection of failed states, weak governments, and poorly managed countries like El Salvador or Jamaica. So why does a developed wealthy nation like the U.S. have a mass shooting problem? There are multiple factors at play. These include high rates of poverty, disparate education outcomes, racial and demographic tensions, economic challenges, and the lack of a social safety net. But even if we fixed all of those things, which would be a big job all on its own, that would not fix the fundamental problem with the outsized access Americans have to guns of a wide variety. The focus on mass shooting centers primarily about weapons and access to weapons. After every shooting, the same debate about the nearly unrestricted access to weapons in the United States begins again. These terrorist-style mass shootings don't usually occur in other countries. In the recent New England... New England in the recent New Zealand mass shooting, Parliament did not rest. They went to work restricting gun sales within the small island nation, which before that had very loose gun regulations. In Norway, where gun control already exists, they hardened their laws after a shooter killed multiple children at a political party outing in the country in 2015. Single events moved governments to restrict weapons access. But somehow in America, we just shrug our shoulders, send thoughts and prayers, and continue on with business as normal as families nor mourn. Little thought is given to restrict weapons access or require background checks. The very idea of licensing is decried as government overreach of basic rights.
The discussions around guns is deeply intersectional as well. When we talk about gun control, it's not as easy as the present discussion around vaping or discussions around automobile safety. Only nine people have died from illegal vape cartridges, and bans have been quickly passed in a variety of states. When Jane Mansfield was killed by her car crashing under a semi-trailer truck, those trucks were required to have bars blocking cars from going underneath them. Beginning in the 1970s, seatbelts became standard in cars, as did improvements in structure to protect passengers from front and side impacts. Airbags went from a feature to standard equipment. My own car has at least nine of them. Even the discussion around clean water and clean air acts did not generate the kind of polarized debate that gun control generates. And part of the reason that is the case is because of American gun culture. American gun culture is unique as well. Most of the countries don't usually choose shooting sports as a hobby. This is usually because of the restrictions on gun ownership. However, in America, gun culture, especially in rural areas, runs strong. There are several aspects to gun culture. There's a sense of identity, power, oftentimes masculinity. It's a hobby. People use it for survival. There's also a sense of having oneself well defended using guns for protection. And most importantly, and probably most common, is the idea of resistance against the government. Any trip through flyover country will be an education in gun culture. Gun stories and symbology abound. Weapons are often seen in the back of trucks or just in public. Many states have open carry laws. People view guns as their own way to maintain some of their power. Guns are a lot of fun when handled safety, and in rural areas they are an essential tool. There are many families, I grew up with them, where hunting was a way to save on groceries. A deer, elk, or other game can feed a family quite cheaply for some time. As for defense, police can be long in coming, and having home defense is essential for many. Gun culture isn't always just crazy people who need a gun to feel like they're a man. Guns are a tool, but the gun culture can feature some interesting people. Of course, most gun owners do tend to vote Republican, and there is a conspiracy element to gun culture that is vital as well. And that gets into a oft-talked-about but not studied enough militia movement. And there are a couple of instances in the last couple decades where the militia movement came right into the American fore. Standoff between a man who was wanted by the FBI and a large number of federal agents surrounding a cabin where a fugitive named Randy Weaver is holed up with his family. In 1992, a bloody standoff between lawmen and an armed white separatist named Randy Weaver left his wife, 14-year-old son, and a federal agent dead. The 11-day siege at a place called Ruby Ridge, Idaho. It happened before Waco, and for many, it's an even bigger rallying cry. I want the truth! The American militia movement began in the late 80s and early 90s. This coincided with a change in culture and also the beginnings of outreach in popular gun culture magazines like Soldier of Fortune. The paramilitary movement arrived due to a variety of culture changes that had just only begun at the time. The demographic changes that we see in the United States were just beginning to be talked about at the time. The fact that the U.S. would no longer be a majority white country by 2035, then over 40 years away, factored in heavily. The breakup of the Soviet Union was also a factor in 1991, although these groups existed in some cases before that. Militia movements believed in taking defense into their own hands. There are several known organizations like the Ohio Unorganized Militia Assistance or the Kentucky Militia. 
There are even crossovers with motorcycle culture and motorcycle clubs. They usually have a distaste for the government, especially the federal government, and are prone to conspiracy theories of the same. These people take freedom very seriously. They also tend to prepare for various collapses and dire events where they will need to survive as the system as we know it crumbles around us. There is something uniquely American about separating and being against government. It is a hallmark of the movement and, to some degree, of greater gun culture. In the mid-90s, three moments stand out in the militia movement. The Siege of Waco and Ruby Ridge. If you aren't familiar with these instances, I'll walk you through them quickly. In the mid-90s, three moments stand out in the militia movement. Two of them are the Siege of Waco and Ruby Ridge. The other is the Oklahoma City bombing. If you aren't familiar with these incidences, I'll walk you through them quickly. The incident in Ruby Ridge, Idaho started in August of 1992 as a dispute over a bench warrant for one Randy Weaver. He was a separatist and a militia type. He and his wife sought out a secluded place where they would live off the land and raise their children. The Marshal Service and FBI attempted to arrest him for failing to appear for firearms charges. For the next 11 days, the family held out against the agents, resulting in the death of a marshal, Francis Deegan, Vicki Weaver, his wife, and their eldest son, Sammy. Although the initial deaths took place in the first two days, the siege continued for nine days until negotiators convinced Randy and their friend Kevin Harris with the remaining children to come out. Harris was acquitted of all charges, as was Weaver, except for the original bench warrant. He was sentenced to a $10,000 fine and 18 months in prison. However, he was credited for time served and was released. Weaver was eventually awarded $3.1 million in damages. Harris was awarded a quarter million dollars for damages. There was an investigation into the government conduct during the raid. Ruby was the first shot in an ongoing conversation. That incident would cause the conversation about gun rights and defense and personal militias to only begin. The next shot in that conversation would be fired in Texas. Down in Waco, Texas, an organization called the Branch Davidians built a makeshift compound called Mount Carmel to get ready for the end of the world. Their leader was a good-looking, charismatic fellow by the name of David Koresh. The group came under scrutiny for the illegal possession of certain firearms. The ATF attempted to serve and execute search warrants, but the group resisted those efforts. The people inside held out for 51 days until April 19, 1993, when the FBI raided the compound and burnt it to the ground. Remember that date because it's very important. It's not clear whether the fire started from inside or outside. It's not clear who fired first, the FBI or the Branch Davidians, but the incident left 80 people, including four ATF agents, dead. For those who have a fear of government, fear of gun control, and a fear of federal government overreach, Waco became a flashpoint in their private fight against a government that they felt was already too much into other people's lives. In 1995, Timothy McVeigh was a young man, fresh out of a less-than-stellar military career and looking for some purpose and meaning in his life. He was radicalized through magazines like Soldier of Fortune. He was someone who fiercely believed in things that have now become somewhat mainstream. If he were alive today, he would be a loud Trump supporter. He believed in making America great again before it was cool. In 1995, after months of preparation, he drove a rented box truck into the loading bay of the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, where it exploded, killing 168 people, including over a dozen children in the, beginning, in the building's in-house daycare center. 
the date he chose for the attack? April 19th. Sound familiar? It should, because he chose the same date as the fateful burning of the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas. McVeigh seemed to take the incident personally as a form of government overreach towards free citizens. The entire facade of the building was blown off when 680 people were injured. McVeigh was pulled over for speeding during his getaway, and he was tried, convicted, and put to death in Terre Haute, Indiana in 2001. Famously, his father, in a terrible bit of irony, after learning that his son had been executed, walked outside and mowed the lawn. But there's nothing about an insane criminal committing a horrible act that should lead to the government taking guns away from law-abiding citizens. That will only make us less safe. Yet that's exactly what we're seeing right now, a highly orchestrated effort to disarm American citizens, unlike anything we've ever seen in this country. It's an effort to destroy the NRA, to defame our millions of members and tens of millions of supporters. An effort that's fueled by billionaires in a multi-billion dollar media machine that couldn't care less about fighting crime. Their fight is against you, your guns, and your freedom. So how, given all that has happened, we still don't have reasonable gun control in this country? There's probably one organization who is specifically responsible for the lack of reasonable gun control in this country, and that's the National Rifle Association. The National Rifle Association has been a major player in Second Amendment politics since 1975 when it began advocating for and against gun rights in Washington. The organization began around marksmanship and enthusiasm in 1871. The NRA informed its members about changes to gun laws beginning in 1934. The NRA is the largest organization of gun owners in the United States. They spend millions on lobbying to prevent any and all restrictions on gun access. Famously, Charleston Heston, if you don't know who that is, give it a Google, was president of the NRA for many years. The NRA grades candidates on how friendly they are to the movement. As one might imagine, Republicans do very well, and Democrats, who are usually in favor of gun control, do not do so well. Bernie Sanders personally boasts about his derating from the NRA in primary debates. The NRA is one of the most powerful lobbies when it comes to gun rights. Anytime there is a serious discussion of gun control, the NRA mobilizes dollars and people to stop real gun control from happening in Washington. This happened during the Obama administration when an effort was made to pass gun control legislation following the Newtown Elementary School shooting. Congress could not move in the face of third graders getting shot. Part of the reason they could not move was due to the powerful lobbying of the NRA. However, the NRA is beginning to crumble and lose its grip on Washington. Recently, their organization had come under scandal and scrutiny due to poor management of funds by the current president, Wayne LaPierre. However, just because the NRA is crumbling does not necessarily mean that America will ever get reasonable gun control.
So the question remains, will America ever get reasonable gun control? It seems like all the ingredients are there. A big national tragedy, many of them in fact, politicians promising change, and public approval of at least background checks. It seems like all the elements are there. So what's holding America back from reasonable gun control? There are a few things. There's the American distrust of government that factors heavily to this. Many many Americans believe the best defense against tyranny is a well-armed populace. There's the idea, embodied in the Constitution, that owning a gun is a part of basic human defense. Although the Supreme Court has given levity to the states to enforce different aspects of this, the basic right has been preserved and affirmed by the Supreme Court. Quite simply, Americans have the right to own guns, and while that's not enshrined in other countries where they can pass regulations, it is here. And that makes the constitutionality of many types of gun regulation quite difficult. NRA lobbying is also a huge factor. As long as the National Rifle Association can funnel money into the pockets of GOP candidates, it will be very hard to make gun control happen. The only scenario I can see that happening is if the entire government is Democrat-controlled, and it could still be filibustered by the Senate, by the GOP, and the minority. The possibility of real, actionable gun control happening is slim. Background checks are just the start. Insurance and registration would also be great steps in reducing gun violence, but it's unlikely this will ever happen. Still more unlikely is a modification of the Constitution to update the language and intent of the Second Amendment for modern circumstances. But that's another story for another day. Gun control will continue to be a hot-button issue in this country for the foreseeable future. We can only hope that as younger people, who are far more in favor of gun control, take power, that action will take place in the future. It hurts to have to say that. It hurts to say that little will be done because of entrenched interests and deep cultural ties, especially when children have died and are dying, and thousands of people per year die in gun violence. Foreign countries warn tourists about gun violence and the possibility of mass shootings when their citizens make trips to the United States. Often, I would argue that we need critical mass and more support from people, but those things are already in place. Like so many problems in the United States, we simply lack the political will to do anything about it, and that is a far greater problem to solve and begin real, actionable change on gun control. That's all for this episode of the Cameron Journal Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Visit us online at CameronJournal.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I love to talk to my followers and listeners. So please feel free to uh, get us on social media at Cameron Cowan on Twitter. And we'll see you next time on the Cameron Journal Podcast. <laughs>